We thank you that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Christ Jesus our Lord. And you have given us everything for life and godliness in Christ. Indeed, Christ is our hope for tomorrow. Our joy in sorrow. And we do confess that he is everything to us. Even now, give us more of Christ, we pray. In his name. Amen. 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 Well, how's everybody this morning? Good. Good to see you this morning. We're so glad to be gathered together uh, to hear God's word and to fellowship as his people. Uh, again, on behalf of the church family, I want to welcome those who are visiting with us this morning. I'm Pastor T, uh, one of the three pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And again, we like to thank you for joining us to worship our Savior. He's everything to us, and we pray that he be everything to you this morning. Uh, coming down the aisles are some brothers with Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand uh, so that we can bring you one. It will help you to follow along this morning. We're continuing a series in the book of Philippians called Serious Joy. One down front here, brother, called Serious Joy. And um, this is the part of the service where God speaks to us and uh, we listen to him. We've been speaking to him in song and prayer and various things, but now we want to tune our ears to hear what thus saith the Lord. We have also been trying to hide God's word in our hearts, to store it there, so that even if we find ourselves in circumstances where we don't have the book physically in our hands, we've got the book written on our hearts. So we have been memorizing Philippians together. Uh, It's a book that we're studying, uh, and we've been doing it on sort of two levels. We've got key verses for each of the sermon texts that we're preaching, and we've got the sermon text itself. So some folks are just memorizing the key verses. Others are attempting to memorize the entire letter. Uh, And so this morning, we want to to have a little practice. We want to recite what we had for this week. So who's got the key verse this morning? Don't be shy. Oh, here we go. Come on. Y'all welcome Aiden. Give Aiden a round of applause. All right. I'm going to give you a microphone, sweetie. There you go. Amen. Amen. Well done. Well done. No pressure on y'all grown rusty folks. Uh, anybody else for the uh, key verse, Philippians 1, 21? Anybody? Excellent. Let's give God praise for Aiden again this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, who has, the, um, who has the text for us? Who has the paragraph? So Philippians 1, the end of verse 18 down to 26. You got 19 to 21? All right, we got an auction going. We got 19 to 21. Anybody got 22 to 24, 22 to 26, going once or twice? Asa, give us 19 to 21, brother. Amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. Anybody want to pick it up from there or give us the whole section? I heard it. Did I hear a yes? Oh, she's like, oh, no. No, no, no. I was studying for my exam. I'm a Howard student. (laughs) 
Anybody else? All right. Well, y'all keep me, y'all try to keep me honest this morning. I'll try it this morning and um, y'all keep me honest here. At the end of verse 18, Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, (laughs) for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all, or not at all be ashamed, but that through, or that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to live, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I remain in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But I will remain, no. But to remain is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue for your progress and joy in the faith your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because I will come again. So it? Because of my coming to you again. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'll take that encouragement. <laughs> well, before we dig into Philippians 1, let's pray. Once again, Lord Jesus, we confess that you're everything to us. We marvel at how appropriate that last song is for this text. And we marvel at how your word could be hidden in the heart of an eight-year-old or seven-year-old. and How it could be stored up in the hearts of all of us who are older. And that it might be a compass to us, a, a north star for us, pointing us Christ's word pointing us to our joy, which is Christ. It's everything to us. And Lord, we want to look into your word and discover why he's everything to us. So that our joy would not be temporary and shallow and fleeting, but so that our joy would be permanent and stable and deep. Give us serious joy this morning as we dig into Philippians 1. Let Philippians 1 dig into our hearts and help us to pursue Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 1975, the Khmer Rouge came to power in Cambodia. They had led a revolution that successfully led to the toppling of that government And immediately they put into place a new regime led by revolutionaries like Pol Pot. The regime was an atheist regime that suffered little, if any, resistance from the people of Cambodia. From 1975 to 1979, the Khmer Rouge slaughtered between 1.5 million and 3 million people. 
in four years. The killing fields, as they were called, became popular or known, not popular, around the world. As I said, it was an atheist regime, and so it really didn't practice or tolerate the freedom of religion. They persecuted all religions. The Muslim Cham were killed. The Buddhists of that region were killed. And so were Christians. It is not new that Christians face life and death situations for the name of Christ. It might be the case for some of us one day. We live with incredible freedom and we live with great comforts. Beloved, that is not guaranteed. It's not even promised. Things could change even in this country in such a dramatic and radical way that it looks a lot like the Khmer Rouge. You see, the Khmer Rouge, in their constitution, also officially had a statement that protected the freedom of religion. Constitutional statements and real practices are two different things. As Christians, we can't hope that our lot in this world will always be comfortable. And the question becomes, what's the secret to living with joy if and when we are brought to a life and death circumstance? How do we have serious joy when our lives are on the line? The answer to that is reflected in a letter from a pastor in Cambodia on the eve of the Khmer Rouge's reign. He wrote there, April 4, 1975, my dear friends, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pray that this would be worked out in my life. I hope that's our prayer this morning. For us to have serious joy, the kind of joy that can look square in the face at the possibility of death and that joy not be diminished, we have to have what we've been calling a passion. Not something that we merely feel strongly about, like some people are passionate about baseball cards or passionate about the Washington Redskins, though who would ever be passionate about them? We, we, we have to have the kind of passion Just seeing if they're listening this morning. We, we have to have the kind of passion. And in Christian terms, that's Jesus and the gospel and life with him in his kingdom. It's serious passion that gives rise to serious joy, even in the face of life and death. That's the burden of Paul's letter here, this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, verses 19 to 26. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to hang our thoughts on kind of three points, three movements in this text. Verses 18 to 21, uh, the first step in having this kind of serious joy is that we must declare our joy. We must publicly declare our commitment to joy. Number two, we have to debate our options. 
We have to consider the the benefits of life versus death, and we have to weigh those in a thoughtful manner, in a spiritual manner. And number three, we have to decide our future. We have to choose a future that leads to joy. Debate, declare your joy, debate your options, decide your future. Philippians chapter 1, the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You remember that we set out in the introduction to this letter, we we made it clear that this is a, a missionary church planter writing a letter of support, if you will, back to one of his partner churches, the churches in Macedonia, in the city of Philippi in particular. And you recall that we said this letter sort of uh, is structured with alternating sections between personal updates and pastoral exhortations. We're still in this first section of personal update. And in verses 12 to 17, you recall Paul sort of talked about uh, the update in terms of present tense, what's going on with him now. He's in prison. But, but that hasn't stopped the gospel. The gospel is still advancing, even among the imperial guard there in Rome. And not only is he in prison, but brothers have been emboldened to preach the truth even more boldly. Some preach with bad motives, some with good motives. But Paul says in verse 18, what then? Only that Christ, in every situation, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, is preached. And in that, I rejoice. That's his present tense situation. But notice now, at the end of verse 18, the verb tense changes. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So now Paul is looking to the future, and the rest of this text through verse 26 is anticipating his future, and he begins right here with this declaration. When he looks out onto his future, Paul commits himself publicly in this letter to rejoicing no matter what. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now I want to tell you a fact about life. You have to choose your own joy. Most of the world waits for someone else or something else to make them happy. But the truth, beloved, is that your happiness is your own stewardship. You have to choose your own happiness. You have to pursue it. You have to fight for joy. Your spouse can't make you happy. Your work can't make you happy. Your possessions can't make you happy. You have to make you happy. 
And your spouse, your work, your possessions, they certainly won't make you happy in those situations where you're facing life and death. For that, you need something deeper. We have to declare that when we get to that situation, we've already made up our minds that we will rejoice. Even in a Roman prison, facing life or death. See, serious joy is a declaration we make in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. The prison chains that Paul is in, the hold that he's kept in, the 9,000 imperial guards who take their shifts watching over him, those are very real things. That's a very real situation. Paul knows that it's real, and yet Paul, in that hole, with those chains, guarded by those soldiers, says, I will rejoice. It's a declaration contrary to evidence. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul make this declaration? What makes Paul commit himself publicly to joy rather than sorrow? or frustration, or fatigue, or a thousand other legitimate emotions that we might feel in those situations. I mean, is Paul just practicing positive thinking? Is this just some theology that denies suffering? No. Paul makes this declaration because Paul has a passion And he sees that it's going to go well with that passion, no matter his circumstance. And part of what he expects here that gives rise to this this declaration is he expects to be delivered. Now, notice there in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Those two things go together, the prayers of the saints and the presence of the Spirit. We don't have the Spirit's power If we don't pray, we seek on each other's behalf the the blessing of the Lord. And the the greatest blessing we can seek on each other's behalf is that he would be with us in his spirit. That Christ would be present in our lives. That Christ would be real in our lives. That Christ would be active in our lives in those situations in which our lives are threatened and our joy is imperiled. And so it's that combination of things of the saints praying for Paul, and of, the, and of God sending forth his spirit in an increased way in Paul's life that makes Paul sure that everything that's happening here is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, there's a surprise in this text. Deliverance is not always escape from the harm. You walk down the street of Anacostia, you no doubt three or four blocks, you're going to pass a storefront church that is committed to deliverance ministry. You ever notice that deliverance ministries are always focused on healings and breakthroughs right now? These deliverance ministries give the impression that the the main act of deliverance is some kind of change in our condition. But beloved, let me go ahead and tell you the truth right now. Many of our conditions aren't going to change. Many of our situations aren't going to be reversed. For some of us, things are going to get harder. They're going to get worse in this life. Now, the question is, is our joy hitched to our situation or is our joy hitched to Christ? 
Because if your joy is connected and hitched and tied to your situation and your situation, there's no guarantee it's going to get better. What's going to happen to your joy? It's going to wilt. It's going to shrink. It's going to give way to all kinds of what we call negative emotions. That's how the world's emotions work. The world is happy so long as things go well for them. And sadly, that's, that's how the emotional life of many Christians work. We have some care, some circumstance, and we have a perception about how that circumstance is going to work out, either positively or negatively. And if we think the circumstance is going to go positive, we have positive emotional reactions. If we think the circumstance is going to go negatively, we have negative emotional reactions. And beloved, that's just another way of talking about worldliness. That's being enslaved to our condition, to our circumstance, to our situation. Notice now, in this text, deliverance is not something we are waiting for in terms of a change of our circumstances. Deliverance is first a perspective we develop based upon our future with Jesus. See, the deliverance Paul has in mind right there in verse 20 is to honor Jesus Christ in his body. Notice, whether he lives or dies. The way he gets that deliverance is through the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit. But the deliverance itself is framed in terms of honoring, respecting, esteeming, exalting, glorifying, celebrating, delighting in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens to him. See the flow of thought in this text. There's prayers and the Holy Spirit. Which means that Paul will have not be ashamed, which, which means he's going to be full of courage. He's going to honor Christ. Now, that way of thinking is ridiculously countercultural. It was countercultural in Paul's day, it's countercultural in our day. Think about Paul's day. The Roman world was all about honor based upon your status in society. You break the Roman world up into basically two halves, the elites and the non-elites. In the elites, you had the, the groups like the senators and the equestrians and the decurions. These were landowners. These were the wealthy. At the top were the senators and coming down the ranks there in terms of honor. And among the non-elites, you had the freeborn and the freemen without property, and, the, and at the bottom, slaves. Dio Chrysostom, a first century philosopher in Rome, wrote this, men desire above all things to be free and say that freedom is the greatest of blessings, while slavery is the most shameful and wretched of states. He would go on to write and say, you will find that there is nothing else besides honor, at least in the case of the great majority that incites every man to despise danger, to endure toils, and to scorn the life of pleasure and ease. He, he said in the Roman society of Paul's day, the worst thing you could be as a slave and the thing that you sought your life seeking was honor for yourself. Now computer, consider how Paul describes himself in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And consider where Paul is. 
in a Roman prison, chained. He would have zero honor in the eyes of Rome. But it's from this very position that Paul sees himself bringing honor to Christ, whether he lives or he dies. See, for Paul, honoring Jesus no matter what, that's the deliverance. That's the freedom. That's the escape. And notice now, this kind of deliverance results in more Jesus no matter what happens. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In in the original Greek, there's no verb. So it basically says, live, Christ, die, gain. Paul says, listen, my life is so much about Jesus that if I go on living, well, I'm going to enjoy Jesus. And oh, by the way, if you take my life, I'm going to be with Jesus fully. So gain. Death is profit for me. Death is advantage for me. Death is reward for me because you know what? I have Jesus now and I'm going to have him in the full when this earthly life is over. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And that's the foundation on which Paul says in verse 18, yes, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I love the words of the missionary martyr Jim Elliott here. I think it captures what Paul is getting at in Jim's own words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, this earthly life and everything in it, to instead gain what he cannot lose, eternal life and Jesus Christ and everything in the kingdom. That's how you face death, with joy. Some of us cannot declare our joy Precisely because we do not reason the way Paul reasons in this text. We cannot declare our future joy in any situation because we tie our emotions to our circumstances rather than to Jesus himself. But if we reason the way the Bible teaches us here, then joy may be always ours. In life and in death. Notice the the sort of four movements here if we summarize. And he says, listen, I am between life and death. That's his care. That's his circumstance, right? It's a real circumstance. But he says, this is an opportunity to honor Christ no matter what happens. That's his passion. And the outcome of that passion, he says, is that Christ will be his reward, right? And then he resolves whichever way it goes. I rejoice. That's the way we have to reason about life. Take your circumstance, whatever it is. Put it in slot one there. You know, I am between life and death. I am between um, housing. I am between jobs. I am am between relationships. put, Put your circumstance in level one there. And make specific note of the fact that it is a worldly, earthly circumstance. Maybe very real, maybe very important, maybe very painful. But don't stop with your circumstance. See the opportunity. 
to honor Christ in your body, no matter what happens with that circumstance, and see the result of honoring Christ that way. To live is Christ, to die is gain, and put then your joy on Christ, on that gain. So how do we apply this? A couple ways to think about this. Number one, we must fill in the blank. We must fill in the blank. How would you finish verse 21 as an autobiographical statement? For me to live is... What are you putting there right now? If it's not Christ, what is it? Is it education? Is it employment? Is it family? Is it money? Is it power? Is it pleasure? What do you put there? And take those things that you are tempted to put there and finish Paul's thoughts in verse 21. To die is what? So if, if living for you is pleasure, then to die is what? Unhappiness? Torture? If living for you is possessions, then to die is what? <laughs> Notice how, take whatever you have and put it there. Notice how it doesn't take you past the grave. You can't take it with you. It won't mean a thing in the life to come. But if for you to live is Christ, who cannot die, who gives eternal life and rules in an everlasting kingdom, then to die is gain. What's in that blank? For you to live is what? See, beloved, there are plenty of people who will live off Jesus but won't live for Jesus. We don't want to be those people. We want to live for Christ so that both our living and dying is gain. The second thing, we want then to not only fill in the blank, but filling in the blank with Christ then, we want to live free from the fear of death. I don't know if it's computed for us, but that's precisely what Jesus offers us in the gospel. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, where the writer of Hebrews puts down these words. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, since we are human, flesh and blood human beings, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became human in order to identify with us. Notice that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, verse 15, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know the one thing the world, everybody in the world fears naturally? Death. It's an unnatural visitor. It's an unwelcome visitor. It is a terrifying thing for many people. And even if you don't live in outward fear of it, most people live their lives calculating ways to avoid it. They spend more hours in the gym than they do with their family. They spend more money on the doctor than they do their retirement. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we look to postpone, stave off, avoid death because we have this natural fear of it because death itself is unnatural. 
And the Bible says this. Jesus came into the world in human flesh and likeness to die in our place and by his very death and resurrection destroy the power of Satan who came to kill, steal, and destroy. And in that act of death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus now has freed us from the fear of death so that if we are in Christ, we have already passed from death to life. Don't you know, beloved, that if you're a Christian, you can't ever really die? You might lay down this body. You might lay down this earthly coil. But to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. Know who you are, Christian. Know what Christ has done for you. He has freed you from death. He has freed you from the fear of death so that you may live and proclaim to live as Christ and die as gain. The best saints in the history of the church have always reasoned this way. Almost as an exposition of Philippians 1.21 is the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism is just a document of questions and answers used to teach people the faith. I want to read the first question. I want you to join me in reciting the answer. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? What's your only comfort in life and death? This is meant to be the beginning of Christian teaching, according to this catechism. Read with me. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Ain't that good? And beloved, this is how the saints of old reflected. And this is how the saints today must reflect. That we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And in him, we have deliverance. And in him and for him, we live. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what we're talking about right now is what God offers to you. He offers it to you the same way that we got it through his son, Jesus Christ. His son is life. He is the author of life. He is the perfecter of life. He died on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago in our place. He was condemned, not just by Roman leaders, but in that cross, on that cross, he was being condemned by God. He was being judged by God for our sins. But God, on the third day, raised him from the grave such that he lives forever. And he raised him to his right hand in heaven where Jesus sits enthroned, ruling forever. 
And one day Jesus is coming again to gather his people, those who are living, those who have died, to raise us together to be with him forever in his kingdom. Those who believe in this Jesus and have the spirit of this Jesus Christ living in them through faith are free from the fear of death because they have eternal life and shall live together with him in his love forever. This God offers to you freely. Receive it. Believe it. Repent of sin and put your trust in Jesus as your God and Savior. And follow him, live for him through faith in his name. And Jesus will never disappoint you. And you may have joy in every circumstance because your joy is not based on the circumstance, but based on this Jesus who saves you from death and hell. Trust him, follow him, and live. If you want to know more about that, see me after the service, see Pastor Dennis after the service, Pastor George after the service, the Christian friend who brought you. We'd like nothing more than to pray with you and encourage you, answer any questions you have that you might have this life and have it more abundantly. So Christian, if we're going to have this serious joy, the first thing for us to do is to declare our joy, not based on our circumstances, but based on Jesus and what he's done for us. The second thing we have to do is to debate our options. Look there in verses 22 to 24. For if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, we, we see Paul's wrestling match here, verses 22 to 24. And this is how we know Paul is thinking in a distinctively Christian way. Because if we were in Paul's situation, it wouldn't be no wrestling match, would it? Uh, life, death, life. Right? We ain't even thinking about it. Life. But Paul says, which he shall choose, he cannot tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. That phrase, hard-pressed there, is the same word that's used of Jesus when he's going through the towns and the crowds press against him. Right? He's squeezed by these options. He's pressed by these choices, whether to remain in the flesh, as he says, or, or whether to depart and to be with Christ. Now think of how radical, then, the deliverance of Christ is such that we could stand between life and death and view them, view them both as good options. To be so freed from the fear of death that you're standing there with one foot in the grave and one foot outside, and you're like, I don't even know which way to go. It's all good, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. <laughs> Paul is so free from the fear of death he doesn't automatically assume living is better. That's how you know the, the truth of the resurrection has gripped your heart. That the reality of the resurrection has gripped your heart. That's how you know whether or not Jesus rising from the grave and coming again is really functionally, practically a reality for you. It's because you, you're free from the fear and worry of death. And you can look at death as one of two good options. 
So he says, if I live in the flesh, which means to continue to live on earth, or if I depart to be with Christ, which means physical death to live spiritually with Jesus, either way, those are, those are good. But notice now, he's got two good options, but they're not equal options. One is better. See, although, although they're good options, they're not equal choices. So in the flesh, he says, listen, this is good because it means fruitful labor for me. Paul means I'm going to go on preaching and church planting and spreading the gospel and building up the church. Or it's more necessary on your account, verse 24. There's some things that you need in your spiritual life, Philippian church, that that I can serve if I continue to live. And so that makes living a, a good option. But, but those, are, those are benefits, if you will. Those are blessings, if you will, that are primarily um, not about Paul, but about others. And notice now, when he begins to think about himself, he says his own personal benefit, he says departing is far better. Ain't even close. Again, being with Jesus is his central animating passion. So when you compare now, okay, I'll be with Jesus, I'll die and depart, or stay here with y'all, Death is far better. Far better. Listen, if we want Jesus here with us, but we don't want to be there with Jesus, then we have not seriously understood how much better eternal life is compared to earthly life. I mean, if we, if we can say, hey, it's cool to be with Jesus as long as I'm living doing this worldly thing, but I ain't really ready to go to heaven yet. Something's wrong with our thinking about heaven. Actually, something's wrong with our thinking about earth, too. We all twist it up. Paul says, no, uh, to depart is far better. That word depart comes from sailing. It's like when a boat gets unmoored or unanchored and it sails off, it drifts off. I love the way uh, one brother put it in his commentary. He used an analogy about he and his wife's 10th anniversary. They took a cruise, the first cruise he'd ever taken. And uh, they went down to Fort Lauderdale, got on the boat and whatnot. And uh, that night the boat departed. It lifted anchor and started to sail on the cruise. And he said, you could see the lights back on shore. But after a little while, it's completely dark. It's nighttime, so you go to bed. Wake up the next morning, and they had a cabin with a window. And the next morning, he saw the Caribbean Sea in this beautiful island. And he imagines that this departing is a bit like that, that we sort of lose sight. The things of this world grow strangely dim. And we wake up on the other side of death, and instead of seeing the Caribbean, we see the Galilean. Instead of seeing an island... We see Jesus. And in our call to worship, that's what David is contemplating in Psalm 17, 15. Remember what he says? He says, I, in my righteousness, he says, when I awake, I will see you and be satisfied. That's the Christian's future when we depart this life, is to wake up and see the one who loved us and died for us. Now, there's something in this text to see also. Something else that these kind of spiritual emotions delivers us from. It delivers us not only from our fear of death, but it also delivers us from selfishness. Did you notice that? Paul says, now look, if I think about this personally, being with Jesus is far better. But now I'm also thinking about you guys. And in thinking about you guys, it seems to me 
that it's more necessary on your account that I remain. It seems to me that it's more necessary that I remain so that, so that some things that are lacking in your faith are actually supplied. See, Paul knows he's going to get to heaven. He just wants to take some people with him. And when we're delivered from a, a worldly view of deliverance, we're also freed from spiritual selfishness. We can say Christ is gain. Christ is far better for us, but the church still needs us. So notice what Paul does. He postpones his personal gain so he can serve the church's need. And we see this in Paul in all kinds of staggering ways. Consider Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. I can't believe he wrote these words. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's thinking about Israel and why so many Jewish people have not received Christ as their Messiah. And he says, man, this breaks my heart. Breaks my heart to the point where I could wish that I was cut off from Jesus, that I was not saved at all, so that all of my kinsmen according to the flesh would indeed be saved. Paul's the kind of man that will willingly exchange his own spiritual benefit for the spiritual progress of others. That just raises some questions for me and some I want to share with you. When was the last time we chose the spiritual good of other Christians in our church family over a far better spiritual good for ourselves? Have we ever done that? If not, what does that tell us about our true passions? Is it Christ and his church or is it our own well-being? Are we spiritually selfish Christians, hogging the good of the gospel? Or are we spiritually sacrificial Christians who live to work for the spiritual blessing of others? Whether that's our spouse and our homes, whom we encourage in the word of Christ, or our children to whom we read the scriptures and with whom we pray and teach the beauties of Christ or our neighbors who need to hear the gospel, whom God has placed beside us as a stewardship, co-workers, our church family? Do we live for the spiritual good of others, or are we spiritual gluttons hogging Christ for ourselves? And the burden of choosing options between life and death falls on the side of choosing life because it's good for others to serve others if that's Christ's desire. Which brings us to a final thing. We then have to decide our future. We have to embrace our future. We have to lay both hands on it. And that's what Paul does in verse 25 and 26. He says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, by the time we get to verse 25, Paul's done with the dilemma. He's no longer hard pressed between the two. 
He's reasoned his way through it. He declared his joy in verse 18, and he worked through the dilemma of living or dying, which is, which is better for who. And, and because he's selfless, in verse 25, he goes, you know what? I made up my mind. I'm convinced. I'm convinced I'm going to remain. I'm going to continue with you all. And he says that the purpose of his continuing is threefold. I'm going to continue, number one, for your progress in the faith for your understanding of this thing we call Christianity, and, and for your trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm going to continue to faith for your growth. Number two, I'm going to continue and remain for your progress in joy. This very thing that we're considering in Paul's life, Paul wanted to transfer to the Philippians. It is part of the aim, as we'll see in a moment, of pastoral ministry. He says, I want you to not only be strong in the faith, I want you to have this deep abiding joy. And then number three, I'm going to continue and remain with you so that you will glory in Christ. He says it in an interesting way. He says, so that in me, you might have ample cause to glory in Christ because I'm coming to you again. In other words, Paul says, you're going to be happy that I have come to minister to you because in my coming to minister to you, you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn all the reasons you have to glory or boast or brag in Jesus Christ. Christ is going to become so much bigger, so much sweeter, so much more wonderful to you as a consequence of God giving me more life to minister to you. For their progress and joy in the faith, for their boasting in Christ. Paul, I would put it this way. Paul wants to live and serve them so that they might have serious joy. He wants their joy rooted in deep theological reflection and personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because the Philippians aren't there yet, Paul thinks it's more necessary that he remain and work for their faith. So that's what Paul chooses. Here's a question. What would you choose? If you're in a life or death situation, which would you prefer? Would you choose the far better of being with Jesus? Or would you choose the more necessary of serving the church? Or would you choose none of the above? There are Christians who neither love Christ enough to want to go to heaven with him or the church enough to want to stay and serve her. There are Christians who have no deep spiritual passion. They are what the Bible calls lukewarm. These Christians are neither hot nor cold. Jesus writes a letter to them. If you keep your finger in Philippians, you can turn with me to the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter number, that's the big number on the page. But when I say verse number, that's a small number. So Revelation chapter 3, big number, verse 14, small number. This is a letter that the Lord Jesus writes to a church in Asia Minor called Laodicea. And to the angel, that's likely the pastor, of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15. 
I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see? According to Revelation 3, it's possible to be a professing Christian who feels really comfortable in this world, who feels like all my needs are met, I don't need anything, I don't maybe even need anybody, I'm good, and have no desire for Christ and and no need, no, no serious interest in his church. This is what is referred to as lukewarmness. In, in the ancient springs there of, of Laodicea and the surrounding region, water would have been useful if it was either hot or cold. But this sort of muddy middle was of no use. Christ is displeased by it. You see that image there. I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm Christianity is no favor to Jesus. Lukewarm Christianity does not please the Lord. So to be in this state where we profess to be Christ, but we're indifferent about being with Christ and we're uninvolved about being with Christ in Christ's church. Oh, beloved, that is, as Christ says here, a pitiable and a terrible spiritual condition. And the danger of the condition is that it induces you to think of your comfort as Christ's pleasure. The danger of the condition is that the comfort makes us easier and easier and that works against the thing that Christ wants, zeal. He wants fervency. He wants us to burn for him. He wants passion. He wants deep feeling and affection and drive for his name and for the progress of his church. And so where we don't feel that, the word here in the text says, repent. You realize that we have to repent of our comfort if our comfort makes us lukewarm with Christ? So which would you choose? Have you any fire for Christ left? Is there any kindling in your heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord? If there is but a smoldering ember, it may become a raging fire if you would repent and call upon the name of Christ for help. 
He'll be the one blowing on the fire. He'll be the one stoking the coals. He'll be the one poking you, yes, but he will be making you alive to how great he is. And he will be making you useful for his kingdom. Which would you choose? Lukewarmness or fire for Christ? Oh, Christian, if you've looked up and feel yourself in a dry place, a comfortable place, and you're comfortable with it, hear the letter of the Lord to you and Laodicea. Repent and be zealous. Burn for Christ. One last question on that. I wonder if we've considered that our joylessness in the Christian life might really be lukewarmness, not your situation. If you're a Christian and you have a noticeable absence of joy and you've been tending to blame that on some circumstances, you might stop and think today about whether or not that's actually lukewarmness and not the circumstance. And whether what's in need is not a change of circumstance, but a change of heart. To repent and be zealous for the Lord. Two other applications and we're done. Two other groups of people I want to apply this to. Number one, I want to apply this to pastors and missionaries among us are those who aspire to be pastors and elders and deacons and, and missionaries. Remember, this is a missionary church planter writing this letter. He's writing to a church for their support in prayer and in other ways. And, and the application from these last couple of verses, I think, are, are particular to us. And so if you're a pastor or an aspiring pastor, a missionary or an aspiring missionary, a deacon or a, a, a wannabe deacon, uh, there are three things here for you, too. Number one, let us grow or progress in the faith. We see that not only in this text, but we see this in Paul's other letters. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, he says to Timothy there, let your progress be evident to all. A leader should be growing before the people. A pastor or missionary that stops growing instantly starts dying. So we cannot give people what we do not have. If we are not growing, we will not induce the people to grow. Number two, if we are pastors, missionaries, or aspiring, we should have joy in the faith. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, a writer there says, let them, meaning the, those who lead you, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Listen, Christian ministry is hard work. It is often painful work. If you have never tried to care for souls, you should try it sometimes. Start with yours. Right, And then seek to care for the souls of others, and you will see what a heavy weight Christian ministry can be. But do you know what? A miserable minister should be a contradiction in terms. Pastors and missionaries ought to be marked by joy. We ought to be the happiest people in the church. We ought to be the ones who are counting it as a privilege and an honor to serve Christ. This is what Paul means when he says that to remain in the flesh means for me fruitful ministry. He's going to give his life in service to Christ and his church, and that, he understands, honors Christ and gives him joy. A pastor, a leader needs to understand that connection. Because if we don't, then we too would be like everybody else. When people are grumbling, then we're down. When people are happy, then we're happy. 
when, when numbers are going this way or that way, then we, we you know, we, we flowing in the Lord. But let a couple people leave the church, then we depress and need counseling. I'm telling you what I know. We ought to be the happiest people in the church. Listen, a miserable leader will create miserable people. A miserable leader will create miserable people. Number three, pastors, missionaries, those who are aspiring to be in in ministry of some sort, we should glory in Jesus Christ. Above all things, we should boast in the Lord. I I just really have no time to hang out with pastors when you meet them and you greet them. And 30 seconds later, they ask you this question, how many are you running? Like, man, I don't run. Look at me. And start to sort of talk about the, the metrics of ministry, the membership size, the budget size, all that good stuff. Brother, stop boasting in your people that way. Boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. Let me, let me tell you how many numbers of years I'm going to live eternally. Let me tell you how many sins of mine have been forgiven, all of them. Right? Let, let me tell you how much strength I have for the work of the ministry. All the strength the Spirit supplies. You know what we're going to boast? Let's boast in Christ. Let's boast in what Jesus has done for us. I wonder if Christians don't more often boast in Christ because pastors don't boast in Christ. If you want to be a leader in God's church, and if you want to be a worker in his kingdom, grow in the faith, Seek joy and boast in Jesus. Those are the kinds of people who are going to be the greatest blessing to Christ's church. Paul says, listen, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, he's quoting Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or Galatians 6, verse 14, but far be it from me, far be it from me, Paul says, to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says there's a triple crucifixion. Jesus was crucified, the world was crucified, I was crucified, all I have left to boast in is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the minister wants stamped on his heart. That's what the missionary wants stamped on her heart. That's what the deacon wants stamped on their heart. But now let me apply this to the congregation as we close. Because this has application to all Christians. Beloved, if you're a church member here or elsewhere, or if you're looking for a church, let me tell you, the reason you should pray for your pastors and for missionaries is you should want them to work effectively in the ministry for your progress and your joy and your boasting in Christ. In other words, there's a real connection between what's happening with your leaders and what's happening with your soul. So you pray for them in a godly kind of self-interest, for their progress, but also for your progress. So you see it in the text. Let me just give you a a few explicit references that teach this about you too. 
So for your progress in the faith. Remember what Paul writes in Colossians 1, verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. What? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You want a pastorate that will teach you and warn you and do that with wisdom so that you, on the day of Christ, stand fully mature, perfected, grown up in Christ. This is for your joy, too. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that to the Corinthians, not that we lord it over your faith. We're not your masters. We're not ruling over you harshly. Not that we lord it over your, over your faith, but we work together with you for your joy. Did you know that that's what it means to be a member of a church? You're in partnership with the leaders of the church in this mutual co-op of joy? You ought to be in a church where you're happy. But you ought to be in that church committed to happiness. Yours and the others around you. But there's a third thing. You want to learn to glory in Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 3, we'll get there in a couple of chapters. It says of the church, we are the real circumcision We're the true Israel of God who worship by the Spirit of God, notice, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's who you are. That's Paul's biography of you. That's God's biography of you. You're his true covenant people. You worship in the Spirit of God and worship by the Spirit of God and your boast, your anthem it's Christ. You glory in him, not in your flesh, not in your achievement, not in your works, not in the things that you have done for Christ, but in the things Christ has done for you. One day we'll all stand between life and death. When that day comes, I hope we will want to be able to rejoice in Christ whether we live or die. We will want to be able to see the value in living in Christ because it will mean profit, fruitful labor for the church. And we want to see the far better value of departing to be with Christ. For we'll see his glory face to face. We want our song to be, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God wants us so delivered through Christ and through the gospel, so thoroughly delivered that that our lives, when we stand between life and death, we view that situation as win-win. And we rejoice. Are we there yet? Then it's necessary that we remain and we work together for joy. It's necessary that we dig into Philippians and we seek this serious joy which Christ gives to his people. Let's pray together. Father, the words of verse 21 are almost too majestic to believe that they could be true of us. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
But Lord, we believe. And we pray you'd help our unbelief. And we pray that you would give us grace to resolve right now that whether we live or die, we will rejoice. That we will rejoice because we know the deliverance that Christ has worked for us on the cross. And we will rejoice because we know that whether we remain in this flesh or whether we depart to be with Jesus, you're going to use our lives for your glory and for the spread of your name. And we pray that you would help us to get Christ and his gospel and his kingdom so central to our lives, so central to our perspective, so central to our affections, that whether we live or die, as long as Christ is exalted, we will be glad. Oh Lord, we want joy. Give us joy in your son, we pray, and make us agents together conspiring to induce joy in our brothers and sisters. Do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.